They bomb a church. We bomb 10. They hijack a plane. We take out an airport. They execute American tourists. We tactically nuke an entire city. Our job is to make terrorism so horrific that it becomes unthinkable to attack Americans. An elite hacker is recruited to join a group of counter-terrorists who also may be terrorists themselves. Listen as we chat about going to Olive Garden in New York City, what coding has in common with driving stick, and how you can tell if a rocket launcher is a heat-seeking missile. Then we find out if Swordfish, the movie, not the actual fish, stands the test of time. James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? James says gladiator with the blood Alan says as a father blah blah It's the test of time James and Alan have their say The movies you love still hold up today? Test of time James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? Hello, everybody, and welcome to a special episode of The Test of Time. Is it special? I don't know. I feel like I usually say that when there's a guest here, and we don't even have a guest. Well, it is special because it's the end of our trilogy. We've done a couple of these uh, collection episodes before. We did an airplane hijacking trilogy, which I was thinking about because Halle Berry is in Swordfish, and she was also in Executive Decision. We also did the uh, gender-bending trilogy of uh, Ladybugs and Just One of the Guys, and uh, She's the Man. That's right, that's right. And that was one movie from the 80s, one movie from the 90s, and one movie from the 2000s. And we did that over the last uh, three weeks. Uh, We did 1983's War Games. Then last week we talked about 1995's Hackers. And today we're going to talk about 2001's Swordfish with uh, John Travolta on Hugh Jackman. And Halle Berry's boobs. That is true. I bring that up because I really feel like that was the thing that people knew about this movie. More than it's a movie about hacking, more than it's a movie with Hugh Jackman, that was the thing that people said about it. Oh, that's that movie with Halle Berry's boobs. And it's interesting that we picked these three films because these are so-called hacking movies. But full disclosure, I wouldn't say that, uh, the, you know, hacking itself, like watching anything with the computers is actually a main theme of these, nor do they really have to be. Also, there's a million other movies we could have picked about hacking. After I apologized in our War Games episode to five-time member Dom Monfrey, he texted me and said that we should have done Sneakers. And then I quipped, I thought that was a movie about footwear. It's definitely a movie about hacking. I definitely do want to review that film. However, it's a, it's definitely a 90s film. So, Dom, if you're listening, that, that's the reason I didn't want to do that film. But that's definitely on the list. And uh, if you want to do it for a sixth time, Don, give us a call. He'll just text me. Yeah, he'll text you, but he won't call. No, no, no. But let's talk about Swordfish. This movie is about a mysterious man named Gabriel who recruits a hacker, Stanley, to steal $9.5 billion. Stanley already has a record, but he takes on this job so he will be able to fight his ex-wife for custody of their daughter. Gabriel plans to use the money to fund his anti-terrorist group, where he will exact extreme revenge on anyone who targets the U.S. Further complicating matters is Ginger who appears to be Gabriel's girlfriend, but then reveals herself to be an undercover DEA agent. Gabriel truly believes in his cause, but does Stanley? Dun, dun, dun. 
So when this movie came out, did a lot of people go to see it in the theater in order to see Halle Berry's boobs? Um, Well, they certainly expected people to. They put a lot of money in this film. This film had a $100 million budget. And I I think it's easy to see where that budget went. This film has a lot of explosions. And one of the opening shots is this incredibly well-done Matrix-style explosion in the street. This film definitely spent uh, $100 million. And unfortunately, it did not make anywhere near that. It opened on June 8th, 2001. It opened at number one with $18 million. It only wound up with $69 million domestically, $147 million worldwide. So, you know, I don't think people talk about this film that much these days. So I can't imagine that the uh, continuing revenue is that high. I can see how this movie is not the kind of movie that you need to rewatch. And I'm not saying that that, like, is the only reason why movies that make a lot of money do make a lot of money. But I could see people seeing it and then just being done with it, you know, not buying it on DVD, not buying it on Blu-ray, not recommending it to their friends. Uh, But I saw this in the theater. I was one of the people that uh, contributed to the uh, $69 million domestically. Um, I might have seen this opening weekend. I mean, this is the kind of film I I definitely liked. And I probably, since it opened June 2001, it was probably right after we graduated college. And I probably saw with some of my high school friends at home. And, you know, I want to go right into the opening uh, monologue that we see. Um, This film is one of those uh, movies that starts in Act 3, in midius res. That's what that's called when they start in the middle. Uh, I might be pronouncing that wrong. But um, the movie starts with John Travolta, and it almost looks like he's talking to camera. He's not. He's talking to Hugh Jackman and Don Cheadle's characters. But he starts with this rant about the problem with Hollywood is that all they do is make shit. And... Obviously, that's fairly meta because John Travolta is in a movie complaining about Hollywood movies being shit. Also, hi, John Travolta, star of Face Off and Look Who's Talking (laughs) 2 and the third Look Who's Talking movie. Look Who's Talking Now. Right. I mean, John Travolta has been in a lot of shitty movies. So for him to like go on this lecture about... The problem with Hollywood movies is that they're all shit. I was like, okay, maybe they shouldn't have given that line to Travolta. I mean, to be fair, John Travolta is famously known for having had like two or three huge comebacks. And by definition, comeback means you had fallen. When we were kids, he was known as kind of like a joke uh, actor. It would be like the punchline in a late night show. Arsenio Hall would say something about him. And then, you know, then he comes back with Look Who's Talking. And then he does the other Look Who's Talking. And he's a big loser for five years until Pulp Fiction comes out. And then he's huge for a couple of years. And then there's a whole bunch of losers. And he can be very good, but he doesn't necessarily pick all the best films. But, I mean, the guy's a professional actor. He acts for money. He does does not act for awards. So, you know, that's what he does. Fair, fair point. I would at some point like to review Grease and Saturday Night Fever on the podcast. I think those would be fun movies to revisit. What about Grease 2 and Staying Alive, the uh, lesser known sequels to both of those films? Hard pass. But the thing about a line like that, where you have someone saying Hollywood makes shitty movies, maybe you're better off having someone who isn't an instantly recognizable actor deliver that line. But whatever, they do. And 
Then we go back and we meet Hugh Jackman's character, Stanley. Neither here nor there, but uh, Stan by Eminem has been in my head all week since watching this movie and hearing the name Stan thrown around a lot. But then, you know, he meets Halle Berry. And the thing about her nudity in this movie is that it is so fucking stupid. It's so gratuitous. It's so unnecessary. And there was all of this press about in this movie, Halle Berry is topless. And then when you see the scene where she's topless, it's for no reason. She's just sunbathing. And I guess like it shows how this character is confident or whatever, but it's unnecessary. You don't need to see her breasts in this scene. When she does nudity in Monster's Ball, which came out the following year, that's like an intense sex scene. That's another movie we could do on the podcast if we want to depress ourselves. But like that nudity makes sense in the context of what's happening to that character. In this movie, it's just there because it's there. And the only thing I could think of was the South Park episode where they finally say shit on TV and it's a TV show within the TV show. It's like a tough, gritty cop drama. And there's all these times throughout the show when they might say, this is bullshit, but they don't. It's just at the very, very end of the episode when someone says, hey, you got some shit on your face. It's anticlimactic. And that's kind of what I was thinking of here when you see Halle Berry's boobs. Um, you know, that that's a fair uh, take on it. I'll give you what uh, Halle Berry says. Um, she said that the uh, nudity part was written in the script before she was offered the role. She said, quote, I was told that's who this girl is and it's not negotiable to be taken out. And she agreed to the scene because, to quote her, it showed you that the character was in control of her sexuality and very comfortable with herself. Apparently, she was paid an extra $500,000 for the nudity. So, you know what? If she's comfortable with it and she got paid a half million dollars for that, good for her. Sure, sure. I'm not faulting her for it. I think it's just kind of funny that this was a year after she was in the first X-Men movie. She wasn't a big star, you know, A-list Halle Berry at this point. So maybe she didn't have the negotiating power to, you know, fight this non-negotiable thing. I think now she would have the clout to say, I don't care if it's non-negotiable, I'm negotiating on it. But maybe then she she didn't. And to your point, she wanted to do it. She got paid. Good for her. The whole thing with Stanley and his daughter, I found, what's the right word? I guess cliche. Like he's a good guy who's going to do a bad thing, but only to get his daughter back. And he needs all of this money because he has to fight his ex-wife for custody and she's got tons of money and he doesn't have any money. So he has to do an illegal job to get lots of money all at once. It's kind of a stretch. I think there could have been a better uh, motivation for him to have to do this. The ex-wife, who we don't like at all, not only does she have money, but she's a pornographer. Right. And uh, so, uh, you know, she winds up being killed and all the other pornographers are murdered too. It's a weird, like, happy ending for for them because in the end, um, the mom is totally murdered. And I guess in the end, uh, Stanley gets his daughter back. This girl is like a 10-year-old girl whose mom is never coming home. There's no implication that this is a bad mother. So, oh, I no, mean, there is. There is because she doesn't pick up the kid from school because she's passed out drunk. That's at, you're, uh, I'm sorry. You're totally right. Um, they, they actually do that so that uh, maybe you're like, you know what? 
She deserved to die. Of course she didn't. This daughter is going to be traumatized. The mom left her at her school. She didn't beat her. I mean, she's a she's an addict or something. She's kind of a loser. Right. When they're talking about the porn movies that her new husband makes, someone says, you know, those movies are made with a very high production value considering they're shot on tape, which made me think of Boogie Nights because we just watched that movie a couple weeks ago. But also when... The mom fails to pick Holly up from school. Holly is the name of the daughter. Stan goes to pick her up, and it's fine. It's no problem. He just gets her. She jumps in the car. I'm not sure if that's a test of time thing. I know now you can't just go to a school and pick up a kid, especially if you're a person who's never been to that school before. He's estranged, right? Like, he's not picking up the kid regularly at school. There's like security. Like when I go to pick up my kids from school, I have to give them my name. If they don't recognize me, because usually they take the bus, I have to show my license. You can't just pick up any kid at any random school. Maybe you could in 2001. You know, it's three months before 9-11, but it's a year or two after Columbine. Yeah. So I feel like that was the thing that really shut down elementary schools and uh, you know really locked them down. But I would say the weirder thing about this uh, scene is that he's lucky that the mom passed out because he's only able to pick her up because he's basically arrives like 20 minutes after school ends and she's just waiting there. So, you know, th- that was convenient. But, you know, I mean, I think what you say, it's cliche. It's not bad. I would have I would have just liked a better uh, MacGuffin for him, uh, his motivation for uh, for him to uh, need the money. You know, the only thing that would have been worse would have been his daughter needs a kidney transplant. Like that, that would have been a little worse. But, but it's almost like I need the money for a lawyer. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. He needs a money for a lawyer. And the fact that they just keep bringing it up over and over again because Stan – is a good guy, and he doesn't like all this bad stuff that he's doing. He wants to walk away repeatedly. But Stan, think about Holly. Oh, man, okay, fine, I'll go along for the ride. Like, they use that several times. That's true. It gets old. And he's recruited, and he's brought to uh, this real fancy club. Like, you know, the, the hottest women are there. And suddenly he's sat in front of a monitor and Gabriel, John Travolta, is like, I want you to break into the DOD, Department of Defense. And Stanley's like, I can't do it. And then he holds up a gun to him and says, you have 60 seconds to do it. So, yeah, stakes are pretty high, right? Al, when a gun is at your head and you have to hack into the Department of Defense. Sure, yeah. What do you think could make uh, the stakes even higher? What? Well, I'll tell you, Al, not only does Stanley have a gun to his head and he has 60 seconds to hack into what is probably one of the most secure servers uh, in the world, but I remember I said there were these beautiful women in this club. Well, uh, Gabriel orders one of them to uh, perform fellatio on Stanley while he is doing this hack. Right. I kind of don't get it from Gabriel's point of view. If you want to prove that this guy is good at hacking and can work well under pressure when like the walls are closing in and the feds are about to bust him, the gun to the head, I understand. But the blowjob at the same time, what does that prove? First, I think it's just to make it more interesting. But second, I think it's a second variable. You're right. There probably is a different stress or, you know, a gun to the head is probably more stressful than a gun to a head and a blowjob. Right. It just strikes me as a thing that is in the movie because it's a movie, which is fine. 
Except then I am reminded of the way the movie started with, you know the problem with Hollywood is that the movies are all shit. And it's not even just that they're shit, it's that they're unrealistic. So, I don't know, I'm kind of thinking like, well, this doesn't seem like it has a point. It seems like it would only happen in a movie and is therefore unrealistic. Well, I mean, neither of us know anything about this world, so I'm going to have to assume it probably does exist because it's in a movie, Al. Um, I don't think that's correct. But just one other point about Gabriel. There's this other hacker who is arrested earlier in the movie and then he's killed. But before he's killed, it's like, who do you work for? What's his name? I don't even know who he is. I don't know his name. What do you mean you don't know his name? You do all these jobs for him. Yeah, but he never told me his name. Then in the next scene, Gabriel meets Stan and he says, hi, nice to meet you. My name's Gabriel. Just right out of the gate, he gives him a name. I I did catch that. I was wondering what that was. Obviously, Gabriel is not hedging his bets all on Stanley. He brought in a couple guys. I think he's been working with that uh, Finnish guy, letting him do a couple tests here and there, because Stanley is completely retired from this. The Finnish guy is an active underground hacker. That's what I think is happening there. And he slipped up by even acknowledging Gabriel's existence to Don Cheadle, who plays uh, his FBI agent. Um, the drive behind uh, Gabriel's desire to rob uh, $9.5 billion from the government, his idea is that he is going to fund this black ops uh, team. It's sort of like the Inglorious Bastards for terrorism. So Inglorious Bastards, if you haven't seen it, it was a group just dedicated to like making the Nazis suffer and killing them in the most gruesome way possible. And Travolta's Gabriel, his goal is to make a, a black ops team that if you blow up a, a building in New York, we're going to blow up 50 buildings in your town. I think he says to make terrorism so horrible that even the terrorists would be scared into uh, into dropping uh, what they're doing. Interesting that he says this on June 8th, 2001. Yeah, it really, really is. And I had looked up the movie before I watched it and I knew it came out in 2001. But I didn't know when in 2001. And I went to look that up because I was curious if it was pre or post 9-11. And I think it's in a way almost ahead of its time in the way that it talks about terrorism. And yeah, there was terrorism before 9-11. There was Oklahoma City and the World Trade Center bombing and uh, those ships that were bombed by Osama bin Laden. Two bombings in Africa, the embassies, uh, twin bombings. Right, right, right. So it was a thing that people were aware of and knew about, but I don't think it was the fear that it was after 9-11. Right, I mean, 9-11, there's literally the pre-9-11 world and post-9-11 world. So it's interesting that the screenwriters incorporated terrorism into this plot For a movie that came out three months before the biggest terrorist attack ever, not that they knew that, of course, but I find this concept really thought-provoking. Gabriel is effectively a terrorist, but he's using terrorist techniques to fight other terrorists, and that kind of opens up this other can of worms of, like, who's the real terrorist, and if you do terrorist things on American soil, as Gabriel does. He's doing it for the greater good, but isn't he also a terrorist? Is he any better than the terrorists that he wants to fight? Well, they're them and we're us, so that makes it okay. There's interesting stuff to unpack there, 
But this movie doesn't unpack any of that. In fact, the whole thing about this this counter-terrorist unit that Gabriel is funding, that isn't even mentioned until, like, pretty far into the movie. It's close to the end. It's not like a theme that is explored throughout the movie. It almost kind of feels like tacked on. Um, I mean, I think the point was for us to not know who Gabriel was the whole time. However, I think it would have been interesting to maybe find this out a little earlier because it's certainly in an ethically gray area. I think it would have been interesting to, to have us find that earlier. Maybe even, you know, let the audience get sympathetic to it. Maybe he's noble in some way. Maybe he his wife was killed by a terrorist and he's motivated that way. And make it gray area, but... Uh, you're right. It, it's not till the end that we don't really know why he's doing it. And it just kind of seems like $9.5 billion more of just like your typical robbery thing. Exactly. I may have asked you this before and I forget what you told me. Did you watch Peacemaker? I saw the uh, first episode, I believe. Oh, okay. Well, because that's a thing about Peacemaker is that he says something along the lines of, I will kill as many men, women, and children as it takes in order to save lives. And everyone's like, uh, did you hear what you just said? But that's his sort of philosophy is that in order to save lives, if you have to kill people, that's okay. And, you know, that's sort of played for laughs and also kind of not. They kind of explore that in the show. And I think that's an interesting characteristic and an interesting point of view. But the movie doesn't really do much with it. And Gabriel is a terrorist. He kills a senator who gets in his way and the senator's aide or assistant or whatever that other guy is. That is a terrorist thing to do. Also, like the line that he gives to the senator before he kills him, where he's like, patriotism doesn't have a four year shelf life, but politicians do. And then he kills the senator like, oh, that's a good line, except senators have six year terms. Do your homework, man. There's no federal politician in America except for a president that is four years. Right. It's like maybe you should make sure that the lines are realistic after you open your movie about how it's annoying when Hollywood movies aren't realistic. Travolta. You know what I noticed in this uh, film? And there's always product placements. Do you remember the Heineken keg in a can? Vaguely, yeah. Yeah, they, they prominently featured it in this film. It was like a two Mississippi shot of it. It was like the only thing in uh, Stanley's refrigerator. Oh, I vaguely remember that. It didn't really catch my eye. Um, Eli and I are still still watching the new season of Cobra Kai. We haven't finished it yet, which is delinquent of us, I know. But there was one episode where there was just tons of product placement. Oh, they they go to Olive Garden? But, like, they spend a lot of time at Olive Garden talking about the food at Olive Garden. It's like, Jesus Christ, when did Cobra Kai become an Olive Garden commercial? I like the Olive Garden. No, you don't. I love their bottomless salad. I really do. Oh, my God. You live in New York City. You could have the best Italian food in the world outside of Italy. I didn't say I have it in New York City. (laughs) Okay. There's one in Times Square, or there used to be anyway. There used to be one in Times Square. I had uh, Brazilian friends that whenever they came to New York, they love going to Olive Garden. I would always go with them. <laughs> like, all right, sure, we'll go to Olive Garden. You know, we can go somewhere else, but sure, you guys want Olive Garden? And they loved Outback Steakhouse, too. So I guess to them, that's like American food, even though both of those are like, isn't it Australian steak and then like Italian? That's <laughs> really funny. Yeah. You know, there's this phrase Stanley says twice in this film, which is, I don't know. 
And this is a line that another hacker had said in a film, Superman 3, starring uh, Christopher Reeve and Richard Pryor. Richard Pryor's character in this film, he's a computer programmer, but he's like never used a computer before. And people are like, how do you know how to do this? And he's like, I don't know. It just comes to me naturally. And I'm like, no, like computer hacking does not come naturally. There was someone that once said, people think I'm a natural-born doctor. No, you're maybe <laughs> destined to be a doctor or you have the all the makings and cuttings, but no, nobody comes out of the womb with knowledge of being a surgeon or a coder. And they asked Stanley, how are you so good at these things? Like uh, He just said, I don't know. I just see the code and I can't explain it. I used to code. Uh, I used to code a lot. I still very little, but it's insulting to to say that it's just natural to know Pascal or JavaScript. That's just impossible. It's like saying Sanskrit came to you naturally. No, it can't naturally come to you. Yeah, like it requires a lot of hard work. Yes. And then the other thing, have you ever driven a stick shift manual transmission? I tried once. It went poorly. This is the other, I don't know. Stanley says to Gabriel, I don't know how to drive this. Do you remember what Gabriel says to him in response? Yeah, he screams, learn. Yes. Then what does he do? He instantly knows how to drive stick. He doesn't say something like, one foot clutch, one foot accelerator, go! You know, it's not good enough to explain to someone realistically, but I can drive manual. It took me a while. So it's one of those, you can't just figure it out. Well, I did figure it out over like a day and I kind of broke the car. Right. (laughs) But uh, yeah, those two things were both a little insulting that you could just spontaneously know is something without having any knowledge of doing it. I'm impressed that you know how to drive stick. I did not know that about you. Just never came up in all of our years of friendship. Um... Maybe Stanley would have been better at driving stick if he had to figure it out while getting a blowjob. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like may, maybe that would have helped. That's true. But in the very end, they've taken up like 30 hostages and they put these very complex uh, collars on their body with a bomb and ball bearings. Each person is now a Claymore mine. Right. And if they uh, grow too far away from the group, they'll blow up. Um, the reason why there's a big explosion in the first opening scene of the film is because the uh, FBI guys don't know about these collars and they mistakenly grab one of the hostages thinking they're rescuing her. And this poor girl's like trying to run into the bank and everyone, the FBI must think she has Stockholm Syndrome or something. But, you know, she knows that if she's pulled away that she's going to blow up. So she does. This parallels the opening scene, the one you referenced earlier, where John Travolta is talking about how Hollywood makes nothing but shit. And then they talk about this famous film from the 70s called Dog Day Afternoon, which uh, I haven't seen. Have you? No, I haven't. And I'm I'm putting it on the list for a movie we should do. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's implied in the film that there's uh, some kind of hostage situation. And uh, Travolta basically says they should be, like, tougher. Why don't they just start executing a hostage every uh, every 10 minutes or something? Every minute, whatever. Yeah, it's kind of an accident here, but they demonstrated that they're willing to really strap on bombs to these people. So the government very quickly uh, capitulates and gives them the bus that they're hoping for. And the bus is driving away, and they're like, all right, we'll just, like, follow you in police cruisers. But Gabriel's a little smarter than that. Right. So then he picks up the bus in a helicopter, 
And once again, I am reminded of the opening line of the movie about the problem with Hollywood movies is that they're unrealistic. While I'm watching a helicopter pick up a bus and fly it around the city. It makes this unrealistic thing stand out even more. Um, But then the bus crashes into a building. And that was when I was like, I'm guessing this movie came out before 9-11 because I don't think you would show that in a movie that came out in the months after 9-11, a vehicle crashing into a building, presumably killing a lot of people. There's no way to see that in a post 9-11 world and not think about 9-11. Obviously, this movie came out three months before, so that wasn't their intention. But um, yeah, holy shit. After the bus crashes into uh, the building, it had originally been held up by like four high-tension wires from the helicopter. Yep. Two of them have now uh, gone away, and the bus is kind of hanging in a vertical position. So one of the bad guys and one of the hostages, they've fallen out the back door. The guy holds on for like two, three Mississippi, and then he lets go. He falls from the bus, falls almost, and when he's far enough away, it's a huge explosion. It's a cool visual. I think it's kind of neat, but I'm also thinking, shit, that guy had uh, 15 pounds of ball bearings in his body. That just rained down thousands of bullets on the ground and every window. And in a post 9-11 world, you think about all these things. Yes, definitely. Absolutely. And then Stanley is so mad at Gabriel that he grabs a rocket launcher and fires it at the helicopter while Gabriel is getting away. And That in and of itself, I found unrealistic because why would Stanley do that? Stanley is a criminal. He is a hacker. He's not a murderer. You know, like he's never killed anyone before in his life that we know about, that the movie tells us about. We don't see him killing anyone in the movie. He seems to really not like violence when there's this whole big shootout scene when uh, he has to learn how to drive stick. He is super fucking pissed at Gabriel because Gabriel killed people like in the middle of the street. And he's like, whatever, I'm done. I'm out. So he doesn't like murder. He doesn't like violence. He doesn't like death. And then he shoots a rocket launcher at a helicopter and hits it, by the way. I don't know how easy it is to fire a rocket launcher at a moving helicopter. I've never done it, but I'm going to say most people probably wouldn't hit the target on their first time. I assume this was some kind of air-to-surface missile. I thought I thought it was some kind of heat-seeking. I'm only saying this because it had like a couple green and red glowing dots on the on the warhead. <laughs> so that's why I'm saying it. To me, it seemed like it was heat-seeking. That was enough to convince me. Well, you know what? That would also make sense in the context of the movie because Gabriel wants that heat-seeking missile to blow up the helicopter. That's his cover because he's not really in the helicopter. He escaped down the stairwell and he talked about misdirection and all of this was misdirection. The whole thing with Ginger was misdirection. She really was working for him. They wanted him to find out that she was quote-unquote undercover DEA. They wanted him to pick up that rocket launcher and fire it at the helicopter. They made a lot of assumptions about what Stanley would and wouldn't do in order for their plan to go off as planned. And I guess it worked out. But like, again, feels unrealistic. You know, we reviewed recently a film called The Game. Um, And a lot of things had to go exactly the way they needed to go. 
But at least in that film, there's a throwaway line where they, they acknowledge there were some backup things. Just in case what we thought you were going to do didn't happen, we had this other option to do. That was a good line that that film needed. This film, you're right, he doesn't prominently show uh, Stanley the rocket launcher. He doesn't do anything like that. He, he kind of just goes on the fact that, yeah, this non-murderer is going to uh, kill me and the pilot of this helicopter and drop the helicopter down on the streets of Los Angeles and, you know, good luck, uh, street people. Right, exactly. Yeah, like, he's not only killing Gabriel, who he's mad at, he's killing the other bad guys in the helicopter and everyone below him. Right. And uh, there was some corpse that we saw earlier in the film that looked like Gabriel, and we were wondering why it was there. We find out now that was the body he put in the helicopters so that they would find, quote-unquote, Gabriel and think he was dead. But the part that I thought was could have been written better was the way Stanley realizes that Gabriel was not in the helicopter but rather escaped in the stairway is he just re-remembers it and he's able to, like... Look at it from a different camera angle. The way that Stanley realizes it is when he says there was no record of a woman named Ginger working for the DEA and no one ever found her body. That's what makes him realize it. Yeah, and I was wondering, does that mean when they supposedly hang uh, Ginger that she was, you know, she had one of those like pipes on her spine or something that she wasn't really being hung by her neck? I don't know. That's a good question. And That's something that doesn't really make sense if Ginger really is Gabriel's partner and they really are in love or whatever. You're taking one hell of a risk in hanging her for a minute that he'll be able to undo his undoable hack. Again, putting a lot of faith in what may happen, but also what may not happen. So that's a good question. I don't know, but it works out for Gabriel and for Ginger. They live... And the movie ends with them killing a terrorist because, remember, that's what they do. They get extreme revenge on terrorists and they blow up a terrorist who's on a yacht. And they imply that they've blown up like three or four other terrorists uh, that month or so. Right. Yeah, there's like news voiceover that says that. But I was thinking about this a lot. Maybe pre 9-11, that's what people thought terrorists did they were on yachts they were partying they don't care about who they killed they just do it for the money and then they're living the good life on a yacht but from what we know about bin laden he was hiding out in fucking caves you know he was eventually found in a compound that i don't think it was like a mansion i don't think it was the lap of luxury right like he was living in like a shitty place like i think the way that americans thought of terrorists changed after 9-11 because now there's this idea that they're not doing it for money. They're doing it for religious reasons. They're doing it for a cause, whatever that cause may be. They're not on fucking yachts. Um, I disagree. I, I would agree that the Bin Ladens aren't, but I would say that there are certainly uh, terrorists and arms dealers and, and those kind of things. I would say that there are still plenty of stupidly rich people, cartel owners. Uh, they have golden yachts as well. Fair. Uh, you know, I think their life expectancy is, you know, 32 years old or something. But uh, you're correct about the Bin Laden kind of guys, but no, I think they, they still do flaunt their money. Fair, fair point. Uh, the other part of the ending is that Stanley, uh, he also gets his daughter back because mom's dead. And I right. guess the government is okay with him now. 
Right. The mom played by Drea DeMatteo from The Sopranos. Drea DeMatteo from Joey, the Friends spinoff. No. No one thinks of her that way. Um, But now that we've come to the end of Swordfish, the final movie in our Hackers trilogy, James, do you think this movie stands the test of time? It's such a pre-9-11 film. This is in the same vein as Face Off and uh, Con Air and those. That's a big summer explosion blockbuster. Oh, yeah, you made one for 80 million. We're going to make one for 100 million. Like that, that was back then the selling point of these films, how much money they spent on it. You know, John Travolta is hamming it up so much. Hugh Jackman, he is playing it completely straight. The writer of this film, uh, Skip Woods, have you ever heard of any of the other films that, that he's written of? No. So he's written some notorious films. Uh, he wrote X-Men Origins Wolverine. Oh, that was the really good one that everyone loved, right? No, that was the one where, you know, Deadpool, he's called the Merc with the mouth in the comics. Do you remember what they did to him in X-Men Origins Wolverine? Yeah, they sewed his mouth shut. Yeah, basically got rid of his mouth. It, it, It made no sense. But he also made another notorious film. I love this franchise so much, I can't ever bring myself to watch this film. He wrote a film called A Good Day to Die Hard. You ever seen that film? The Fifth Die Hard? I have seen it. You've never seen it? Because I've heard about how bad it is. James, however bad you're imagining it, it's so much worse. And it pains me to say that because I, too, love that franchise. And we will do it on the podcast sometime for Christmas. But, yeah, that fifth one. God damn. The guy who wrote that movie should be ashamed. Skip Woods, you should be ashamed. Yeah, um... The director of this film is this guy named uh, Dominic Sina. He's done mostly um, music videos. He loved Janet Jackson videos. Rhythm Nation, uh, he did that one. He did Gone in 60 Seconds. All of these things that I said that are so stupid about this film, I just had a lot of fun watching it. I have not seen a Hugh Jackman film that I hated. Even X-Men Origins, Wolverine, you still have Hugh Jackman in it. Um, John Travolta is being so John Travolta in this film. There's another uh, character actor I love whenever he pops up in a film, a guy named Vinnie Jones. He's one of the tougher talking bad guys who's like even talking to the uh, hostages. You look at me again, I'm going to shove this gun up your ass. That guy, he, he pops up in a lot of films kind of as a crude bad guy. He dies by falling out of the bus with that other hostage and blowing up in midair. Um, you know, for me, the film is, it's just stupid fun. And just for that reason, I'm going to say this is a dumb film that I think stands up because it's not a realistic film. I think if it didn't star John Travolta, it may not stand up because he's a cartoon villain in this. So I totally understand someone not liking this film. I just had fun watching it. If you want Dumb, mindless fun. Watch this film. If you don't like dumb action kind of uh, face-off Con Air films, don't watch this film. What do you think, Al? Does this film stand the test of time? So, first off, not at all surprised by your verdict. Not even a little bit. (laughs) Two, right before I came here, I had dinner with some coworkers, and I mentioned to one of my colleagues, Michelle, that we were going to be talking about this movie. And she said... I remember Swordfish. That's a good, bad movie. It sounds like her opinion is sort of in line with yours. 
when she says it's a good, bad movie, I would say that she's half right. (laughs) It's a good movie, Al? No. It's a bad movie. This movie is really, really painfully stupid. And the fact that you picked it for the hacking trilogy, I understand your reasoning and you wanted one from the 2000s and I get all of that. This movie isn't really a hacking movie. This is an action movie. Hugh Jackman plays a hacker, but he also could have been a munitions expert, a safe cracker, a translator who speaks this one language that they need. His one thing could have been anything, and it would have changed this movie not at all. Maybe it changes the blowjob scene because he has to be doing something else while, while getting a blowjob. While he's cracking a safe. Sure. That would have been a little harder to shoot, I guess. But, you know, they probably could have done it. The hacking in this movie is incidental. This movie is just an action movie. It's an explosion fest, like you said. Um I would have thought that this movie was stupidly unrealistic no matter what, but the fact that it opens with this whole monologue about how annoying it is when you watch a movie that's unrealistic, that just makes it fucking worse. And the one quote-unquote good thing that I'll say about this movie is along the same lines of what I said when we were talking about War Games two weeks ago with Eli— When I said that in 1983, when War Games came out, the threat of nuclear war was real and people really felt it and worried about it. And in a very good way, that's not true now. And I think that the fact that this movie does have this angle about terrorism, I think in a similar way, that's not a huge fear that people have right now in 2022. That doesn't mean that it's not a realistic fear. Nuclear war could happen. Terrorist attacks can still happen. And also, just because something isn't a thing that lots of people fear right now doesn't mean that you can't make a movie showing how scary it is. Maybe a good filmmaker would say, hey, this is why people should be scared of this thing that people aren't scared of. That's fine. But I think that doesn't really help the movie in terms of standing the test of time. It's not the only reason why fucking Swordfish doesn't stand the test of time. There are many. One other random line that made me laugh from a test of time point of view is when Gabriel's giving his spiel about misdirection. He says, the problem with today's magicians is they only care about TV ratings. None of that sentence stands the test of time. Who are today's magicians? What are TV ratings? Oh, also when Ginger first introduces herself, Stanley says, Where's Gilligan? Which I get that that's a Gilligan's Island reference, but no one today would get that reference. Uh, And I've never seen a single episode of Gilligan's Island. And I don't think I ever will at this point, right? Um, But no, this movie definitely does not stand the test of time. This is a very, very stupid movie with a very, very stupid title. They explain what swordfish means within the context of this movie, but it doesn't make me want to see the movie. The movie title is incredibly stupid. You're correct. They honestly could have just called the movie Halle Berry's Boobs. That probably would have helped it at the box office. Probably. Hey, do you want to go see a movie called Swordfish? No, not really. Hey, you want to go see a movie called Halle Berry's Boobs? Yeah, sure. But that's going to do it for our hacking trilogy. That was fun. Next week, we come back with another movie that has nothing to do with hacking, I don't think, Boiler Room. And we're going to be joined by our friend Mike Kahn coming back on the show. 
I like when Mike Kahn's here. Me too. He's a good guy. Until then, we want to know your thoughts about Swordfish and hackers and war games and hacking in general. What do you think? What's your favorite hacking movie? Tell us. Write to us at Test of Time Pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We'll do more hacking movies. We'll do sneakers eventually. We'll do The Net with Sandra Bullock. There's more we can do down the road. The Hackers Spillover Trilogy. Oh, God. That doesn't really entice people to want to listen, does it? And we'll see you next week, everybody. Bye. Bye.